Well, good morning. This morning we're back in 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we've been on the theme of suffering, which has gone throughout the book of 1 Peter. Uh, and today, as 1 Peter is moving towards its conclusion, Peter gives a final exhortation where he wraps up many themes of suffering that are found throughout the book before moving to the conclusion. And that's what we're going to have this morning. Now, for you young worshipers amongst us this morning, we're supposed to entrust God with something, as we see in this passage. And so my question for you is, what are we supposed to trust God with? Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, your word is living, and your word is active, and your word is needed by us this morning. Would you speak to us and show us that you have a plan in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, and that we are not surprised by them? So, Lord, thank you for this word to us. I know I'm a broken and cracked vessel, but I know that your word stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my wife and I have been here for over a year, and um, one of the many things that excited us about being here, aside from being a part of New St. Peter's, was that we were actually living in a uh, first-floor apartment for the first time. The past two apartments we were in were on the third floor, and so naturally we were excited to be on the first floor, because on the third floor, everything is a trip, multiple flights of stairs, Every grocery run is magnified, every trip, every moving in and out, and so we were so excited to be on the first floor. And so we were surprised when it wasn't quite what we expected. Last November, there was a lot of rain, and when suddenly we got rain coming in from under our door and leaking into the house, and we said, we never got this on the third floor. And it's happened a couple of times since then, and most of the time we were surprised, and finally, now that we've been here a year, I don't think we're going to be surprised anymore. But often we're surprised at trials when they come, right? And, and being in a first floor or a third floor apartment, for that matter, is, is difficult, and it's maybe a little T trial. But here, Peter is talking about big T trials, sufferings, difficulties. But something interesting is that basically the same thing is happening to us today that was happening for them when Peter was writing, and in some ways was happening to Amy and I with our apartment. We were surprised by suffering. We didn't expect it. We thought things were going to go differently. But what we see is Peter is writing to believers, and he's telling them, do not be surprised, verse 12, by the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And many of these believers that he's talking to are Gentiles, and so they're not used to necessarily suffering for the faith. 
They're new converts, and they're saying, okay, now I believe, but now what's happening? They're surprised by that suffering. Many probably no longer had the social standing and comforts that they had expected in the Roman Empire by not believing, <clears throat> excuse me, by not believing in the Christian faith. And many were probably discouraged, questioning, or disillusioned by this faith that now saw them suffering. And though we're thousands of years later, like them, maybe we're new or growing Christians, getting suffering for the first time for our faith. Like them, maybe we're surprised that the comforts we've thought we carved out in this democratic nation aren't what we thought they were. Maybe we thought there was going to be more change by who we put in office or who we want to put in office. Like them, maybe we're surprised to see others suffering for Jesus and wondering, is that going to be me soon? Or like them, maybe we're discouraged. Maybe we're questioning. Maybe we're disillusioned by it all. Maybe we're saying, I know there's something about Christian suffering, but I see a lot of people who claim Christian suffering, and that just doesn't add up for me. Well, what are we to make of this? Peter's message to us is clear this morning. We should expect and embrace Christian suffering. We should expect and embrace Christian suffering. Now, why? Why should we do that? Because God gives us suffering as a test and as an opportunity to trust. First, suffering is an opportunity to test. You see this in verses 13 through 16. Now, when we think of suffering as a test, everybody immediately says, it's testing me, right? It's a test of you, which is true, and we'll see that in a bit. But first, it's a test for you. So if you're wondering how I was going to get three points out of two this morning, this is too many points in the same one. So first, suffering is a test for you in verses 13 and 14. Now remember, Peter throughout his book has talked about trials revealing the genuineness of your faith. And so here we see a similar thing. Our trials indicate our union with Christ. Look with me at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Literally here it talks about we have fellowship with Christ's sufferings when we're suffering for the faith. A union in suffering, as we see here, also means a union in glory, in Jesus' glory. Elizabeth Elliot, in her excellent book, A Path Through Suffering, says, there's a necessary link between suffering and glory. So no suffering, no glory. Now it also shows us, it's a test, and it indicates that we have the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And rest here means it's given to you, but it also has the idea of refreshment. God's spirit strengthens us in the time of trial, in the time of suffering. Romans 8 talks about this a lot. The spirit bears witness to who we are, that we are heirs with Christ, but it also says, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. There's a connection there. Uh, Ed Clowney puts it this way. He says, suffering is not a threat to the believer, but actually a promise. Let me illustrate this for you. Um, like many of you, I took chemistry in high school, and I was not very good at it. Um, but there would be a lot of labs where they'd say, okay, mix these ingredients, mix these chemicals, and when you do it, it should look like this. It should look this color, right? Now, mine never quite looked the right way, but if you get it to look that color, you know you've done it right. You know you're following the instructions. And in the same way here, Peter is saying, if you're suffering as a Christian, and you're suffering well for your faith, that's an indicator 
that you have faith. That's an indicator that you're unified with Christ. It's an indicator that you have the Spirit. But here's the sticking point for many of us. We know people have suffering that they label as Christian suffering that we think, okay, I don't think that's Christian suffering, right? That's the sticking point. So that's why the second test comes into play. It's a test of us, verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Again, Peter is picking up on themes that he's been talking about throughout the letter. Don't use your freedom as a cover for doing evil. You should suffer for doing good, not for doing evil. But here we actually get a list this time. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now we read those and the first three make sense to us. Okay, it's not Christian suffering if you're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. And then we get to this word meddler. And we're not really sure what he's talking about. Some of your translations might say busybody. A good way to think about this word is it's actually two words just thrown together in the Greek. It it means another's overseer or another's bishop, right? Basically, we suffer when we're too busy with someone else's business, not our own, even including someone else's suffering. Trying to be the one who says, I think this is accurate, I think this is not accurate, and judging somebody else or going to try to figure out what's going on with them without actually ever talking to them. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Um, I was told this by a pastor. It happened many years ago, and, and he was going to a presbytery meeting. He was meeting with some of the local pastors and elders. And as he pulled up, he saw a pastor pull up in a brand new, very nice, very expensive car. And so his mind starts working, and he starts thinking, how much is he getting paid? What is he doing with his money? Right? Should I be getting paid more? Should I be getting paid What's going on, right? What is his lifestyle like? Is he in this for the right reasons? All those things go through his mind. And as the meeting unfolds, every time that other guy has something to add, has some input, the pastor can only hear it through the lens of that car. He can only think about it as, well, he says this, but I don't know if he actually lives it out. I don't know if he actually means it. Well, fast forward to the end of the meeting, and he overhears that guy saying, I am so, so thankful that my friend let me borrow his car, or I never would have made it to the meeting. And when that happened, he just understood fully the idea that I was trying to oversee this man in a way that I was not meant to, and I didn't even ask him. If I had asked him about it at the very beginning as he gets out of his car, it's a very different meeting. So much so that he suffered because he didn't even know what was going on the whole time. We suffer when we're too busy thinking about someone else and trying to oversee them. Now, there is such a thing as true biblical oversight, as we'll see actually later in 1 Peter, but Peter here is saying There's oversight that we try to take over one another, which we don't need to do. And actually, Peter knows this well himself. In John chapter 21, when he's reconciled to Jesus, and Jesus tells him what kind of death he's going towards, he looks at John and says, Lord, what about him? And Jesus' response is, what is that to you if he's to stay until I come? But you, you follow me. So we suffer when we're too busy with others' business. And the thing about it is that suffering, as we've seen, is a test for the genuineness of our faith. So it will be made clear over time. We don't have to always take everything up into our own hands. So what does it mean that suffering is a test? Well, if you're suffering, we can actually rejoice, as Peter says. We can actually take heart because we have God's Spirit. We're unified with Christ. And we're also suffering together as a people of God. We don't have to suffer alone. 
Now, if you're somebody who tends to shy away from suffering, we actually have to see it as a positive thing. It's like when you're lifting weights, there's a certain soreness, there's a certain fatigue, which is actually telling you that you're building muscle, that you're actually doing something right. We often fear the response of sharing the gospel because we think somebody will think of us in a certain way. But we need to be encouraged that this is what we're meant to do, and this is part and parcel with what it means to be a Christian. Also, if you're disillusioned with what it means to suffer because you see that people are suffering and claiming it as Christian suffering, know that they're going to be refined. Know that there is a process by which it's going to be tested. But also, talk with them. Don't oversee them. Go see them. I find myself all too often assuming something about someone rather than talking and having a good conversation and realizing, oh, this is what's going on. So go see. Don't oversee. So we must expect, we must embrace suffering because it's a test, both for us, but also of us. And second, it's also an opportunity to trust. Look in verses 17 through 19. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So second, it's an opportunity to trust. You see, we we see this word judgment, and we're kind of immediately thrown off. What is it talking about, right? We see the word judgment. Well, judgment means the final judgment in some ways, but also refers to the trials that we're undergoing, that faith that's being refined by the trials, as we've talked about. This also helps us understand what's going on in verse 18, because we get this word scarcely, and a lot of us get hung up. What does it mean, scarcely saved? Well, scarcely saved doesn't mean it's difficult to save you in the sense of, like, you were just barely saved, right? Got in by a fingernail. Rather, it's a difficult life as a Christian. There is suffering in this life. This is very far from the prosperity gospel that we see today. Your best life now. As many have quipped, actually, the Christian life is your best life later. But the thing is, well, as Matthew Henry put it this way, he said, those in the family of God have their worst things in this life. But there's a question here. We have these, this idea about unbelievers, right? What do these verses mean for unbelievers? Peter says, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Well, if Christ had to suffer to work salvation for those who believe... And now those who believe now suffer for their belief. What happens to those who don't count Christ's sufferings and the sufferings of his people as worth it? How can you be saved by what you don't believe? And I know it seems harsh, but at the same time, it's got to be just. If you don't believe, how can that be effectual for you? And at the same time, believers, we have to ask ourselves, how can we believe without being willing to suffer as Christ suffered for us? So what's to be done? Right? Whether you're an unbeliever wondering what that means for you or a believer saying, wait a second, what does suffering look like for me? What's to be done? Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is our hope, that we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Now, the thing is, Peter uses the term here, faithful creator, which means all of this is his. The God made it. We can trust him. He's faithful. He loves us. And also, because he's created all things, there's a way in which he's created them. If there's a creator, there's a created order. 
which means it matters how we do things. It matters how we live. And it means that God has a plan for us. Samuel Rutherford, when when speaking about suffering, he was a man who lived in the 17th century, he put it this way. He said, when I find myself in the cellar of afflictions, I remember that the good king keeps his wine there. Our faithful creator has a plan for us. Now, we can think of many examples of martyrs for the faith, people that have suffered persecution and imprisonment and things like that. Um, And those are really good examples of this. But also, what does it look like for us? Because as we go into work tomorrow, as as we go about life and parenting this week, what, what does it look like? Well, two of these examples, I have three quick examples. Two of them are from the book Work by Dr. Dan Doriani, which I highly recommend to you. The first is a guy named Mike, who's a CFO of a major media corporation. And he recognizes and realizes that as time goes on, their company is buying up a lot of suspect companies, including a pornography company. And he says, I don't really want to be a part of this. What is my role as a Christian here in this company? And a lot of people are saying, well, either just ignore it or either just leave, right? But what he does is he goes into the next board meeting and he says, hey, actually acquiring these things goes against our company principles and charter. And the response he's met with is, well, we're diversifying our company, and I know that the regulatory agencies wouldn't like this, but nobody's going to tell them. Like, who's going to tell them? And he says, I'll have to tell them. I'm morally and legally bound to do this because it's against our charter and against our principles. Now, by God's grace, they got rid of those companies, and he stayed on as the CFO. But he didn't know going into the meeting what was going to happen, but he stood up for what he knew was right. Lisa was a software engineer, and she was really good at what she did. Second example. And she was given the task of rejuvenating a state lottery, knowing that you can make even more money. And while she knew that some of that went to good causes, a portion of it, she also knew that it preys upon the poor. And so she decided to not take that job. And she had enough clout, she had enough seniority in her firm to actually move that somewhere else. But it's possible it could have been a different scenario. She might not have been able to. Both of these situations worked out well, but the people in them didn't know. They entrusted their souls to God while doing good. The last example I think of is my grandfather, whose tie I'm wearing this morning. He was a civil engineer, and there was a project he took on, which was a hospital. And the thing was, he was supposed to add multiple stories to the top of the hospital, but he had to keep it in operation. And that's a logistical difficulty. That's all sorts of difficulties. And a lot of people probably would have shied away, but he knew the good that would be done if there was more room, and if it kept working. So he took that upon himself. He took the difficulties. Now, for some of you, you might say, okay, that's just you know, an engineering difficulty, and that's just a logistical difficulty, but he took that on because he wanted to do good. And so he entrusted his soul to God while doing good. And you see, there's a spectrum of suffering, right? It's not just the people at the ends. It's certainly people at the ends that are dying for their faith, but there's also a spectrum of what it looks like where we are. So we entrust our souls to God while doing good. But again, what does doing, God, or doing good mean? Well, it means we follow God's created order. It means there's a true standard of honesty. Our yes is yes, our no is no, right? Despite whatever consequences may come. There's a true standard of what it means to love one another and people to be created in the image of God. That means we love those who don't have the privileges that we have, be them in the world or in the womb. It means that we love people no matter their ethnic heritage or their socioeconomic status, right? We love one another with the love that God has in his created order. 
It also means there's a true standard of sexuality. It's not all about our pleasure. We don't get to make of it what we will, but rather it has a purpose that God has given to it. And pleasure is a part of that, but there's a distinct purpose. This is what it means to do good. It means to raise our children up to know God's goodness and to trust their souls in his hands. And so when it doesn't make sense, when we look at things in the Bible and say, that's what he says, but everything else is saying something else, we trust God. We trust his judgment as the faithful creator who made this world and who made us. So we must expect and embrace suffering because it's an opportunity to trust. Now the thing is, this is also very, very personal for Peter. If we look at the life of Peter, if we see Peter in the Gospels, there's a lot of things about him that that make this a very odd thing for him to write. First of all, he doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. He doesn't think Jesus should suffer. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He He doesn't know what he's talking about. And then when Jesus goes to the cross, Peter is not willing to suffer. Peter denies him three times with a small crowd of people somewhere outside, right? Not a big inquisition, just a very small group, but he denies that he's with Jesus. But then, in the book of Acts, we see a very different Peter. We see a Peter that preaches to thousands at Pentecost, who's imprisoned for preaching, who then miraculously is released from prison, and what does he do? He goes right back to preach some more. He then, with the other disciples, come, come in, uh, they go before all the religious leaders of the day, and he doesn't renounce Jesus. He says, we will keep preaching. And as Acts says, they, the disciples, rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, what happened to Peter? How could we have this Peter in the Gospels and this Peter in Acts? What could possibly explain that? Only one thing, and that's the risen and yet crucified and risen Christ. A Christ who suffered and yet was resurrected. Put it this way, Peter had to be made alive. James Philip, a pastor in Scotland in the 20th century, put it this way, any dead fish can swim and float downstream, but it takes a live one to fight against the current, right? Peter and the disciples were alive in the gospel truth that Jesus had come and suffered for them and also had been raised And they had God's spirit, which empowered them to do bold things for the kingdom of heaven, to entrust their souls to God while doing good. Peter and the disciples were alive by Christ's work, alive by his sufferings, and understood their sufferings in the context of Christ's sufferings. In the wake of World War I, an English minister by the name of Edward Chileteau was thinking about what does it mean that we just had this great war and saw so much suffering and death? Where does the gospel fit in? And he penned this poem, uh, it's a very short poem, I'm going to read for us this morning, that I think, is so, uh, I think is so good in connecting a lot of the dots of Christ's sufferings and our own. And it's called Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. The heavens frighten us, They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is thy balm? Lord, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. 
They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope in the midst of sufferings, in the midst of trials, because he suffered for us and was resurrected. And in the same way, if we suffer with him, we will be raised with him. Therefore, if you're in the midst of suffering, be encouraged by the promise of God in the midst of that. If you're shying away from it, know that this is where the Lord wants his people. And so begin to wade into what it means to suffer as a Christian. If you're disillusioned by suffering, know that the faithful creator knows what's going on and trust him while doing good. So we expect and we embrace Christian suffering because it's a test of our genuine faith, because it's an opportunity to trust our faithful creator. And so may God give us strength to endure until the end. And let me leave us with 1 Peter 4.19, which by many is considered the theme verse of this letter. Therefore, let those of us who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we need you in the midst of our suffering. It doesn't always make sense to us. We know your good and perfect promises. Lord, would you empower us by your spirit this week to do good while entrusting our souls to you? Oh Lord, continue to work in us, continue to change us, continue to make us know you more. I pray that you would guide us as we go from here. Show us where to find that. Lord, thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.